to the second episode of From Theorems to Theories. I'm your co-host, Alexander Elbekian. And Steve, introduce yourself. Yes, so yeah, I'm Steve Ashkarian, the other co-host. And today we're going to give you another theorem and another theory. What will you talk about today, Alec? Well, uh, seeing that last time I spoke about uh, quantum stuff, today I decided to talk about one of the most fundamental theories or models of uh, statistical mechanics, which is classical ensemble theory. And it's more or less the basis of any, uh, let's say, uh, like every material scientist has to know this thing, like classical ensemble. They have to know this classical ensemble theory in order to uh, work, they w- work their way through complex materials. And what are okay. you talking about, Steve? About uh, theorem and topology, actually. Uh, it's due to Tikhonov, Tikhonov's theorem. Right. And it's a really nice journey. So why should I, shouldn't I start? Yeah, you go, you go on it. I'll listen. Okay. But you so, don't mind me asking yeah. questions on, throughout the way because there's a yes, high chance yes. that I'm going to get lost. Yeah, same with me, with your talk. All right, we got it. Okay. So today I'm going to talk about Tikhonov's theorem. And it's actually a journey that we're going to embark today. Um, yeah. So it's in topology. So what's topology, first of all? Topology is the study of open sets, closed sets. Um, it's like geometry, but it doesn't have any metrics. So um, it's more When you say set- metric, what does the, like, yeah. how, how, do you, how do you define the metric? Because we, yeah, we, metric- we know what metric is in physics, but like, is it the same thing? Yeah, a metric is basically a function, that, a distance function that you can, let's say you have a set X and you want to yeah. define the distance between two elements. So you have a function D from the cross product of X and X. Oh, okay. And it gives you a, and give you, and it gives you a positive number. So the distance so, between X and Y is positive and it satisfies a certain number of axioms, this distance function. For example, the triangle inequality, if uh, distance between... Um, X and Y is the same as the distance between Y and X, such and such. Oh, uh, so basically what you're saying is like for an analogy for towards physics. So basically what you're saying is the metric, as you defined it, is similar to the metric in physics. But instead of elements in a set, it's points in space, the distance between two points in space. Yes. So in an arbitrary set, it's uh, the distance, like not the real distance, like as in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, taking a ruler and saying that the distance between this point and that point is such and such centimeters, but you can just create your own distance function. With that, it has to satisfy the axioms I mentioned earlier. All right, so, okay, 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 I get that. Okay, so that's a metric, but, but here we don't have any metrics. We just have set theory and the notions of open sets and closed sets. All okay, right. so what is Tikhonov's theorem? First of all, Tikhonov's theorem is telling us that an arbitrary product of compact sets is still compact. So first of all, we have to know what a compact set means, right? Yeah. So think about it this way. The easiest way to imagine what a compact set is, is that it's a set in space uh, that is closed and it's bounded. What does bounded mean? You know what bounded means, that it has so, some sort of edges. So it, you cannot go outside those edges. Yeah. So, uh, for example, if I'm going to take it... Uh... Like a like, ball, for example. Yeah, the exactly, ball, like a ball, but like a sphere. the boundaries are included. So let's say the radius 
uh, like the point at the like every single point at the distance of the radius of that ball is the last point of the entire set. It, the set cannot yes. go, cannot extend further from that from that point. Yes, exactly. But uh, yeah. of course, we have more complicated compact sets. That's the most easiest example. But just for intuition, that's what a compact set means. Like uh, it's closed and bounded. Just a general inquiry: Could you like prove? let's say, uh, the boundaries of a set using the epsilon delta proofs, just like, that, that's just like my... Uh, I don't understand uh, your question. What, what like, for I example, uh, are boundaries similar to limits? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, boundary points are, the lim uh, are some sort of limits of a sequence in the set. All right, so you can... Because so, when, when I took my complex analysis course, I remember yeah. we used epsilon delta points and uh, on boundary points, just to prove yes, that yes. whether the point is a boundary point a, or not. Yes, if you have a sequence in the set, uh, then the limit has to be in the closure of the set and the, the boundary is included in the closure, so yeah. Uh, okay, 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 go on. Okay, so we know what a compact set means, but there's a more complicated definition of a compact set because this the definition I gave uh, has the, some sort of the notion of a distance as a has a notion of a metric because I said bounded. Bounded has uh, bounded uses the notion of a metric, but we don't want metrics, right? I mentioned that earlier. So yeah. There's another definition of compactness. So you have, let's say you have a set X. If this All set right. X has an arbitrary covering, what does an arbitrary covering mean? That means it's covered by open sets U I which are infinitely many, let's say U1, U2, U3, et cetera, et cetera, which cover all of this set X. All right. If you can pick finitely many of them and it still covers X, then this set is uh, set to be compact. All right. Okay. So first of all, mathematicians came and said that if we have two compact sets, X and Y, is the course cross product compact? What do you think? Too compact, uh, not necessarily. No, it, actually it is. Oh, okay. If you have two sets, X and Y, then the cross product is compact. And this proof is actually easy. And the thing it's is, I don't, like, I don't know how to proceed on doing the cross product of two sets. Is it like the yeah, same? Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, is it... Yeah, tell me, tell me. Yeah, like, for example, if I do the cross product of the real set, I'll get the complex plane. Is it the same yes, concept? R, R cross R is the complex plane. Yes, R2 right, is isomorphic. Right, like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So if we have two compact sets, X and Y, think about X as R, okay? All right. And Y as another R, and you're cross-producting them. But R is not actually compact, so I have to say, let's say the interval 0, 1, okay? Right. So think about the interval 0, 1, and cross-product it with the, another interval 0, 1. Then the cross-product is the box 0, 1, 0, 1, right? Yeah. And this box but it's is compact. compact. Yeah. Because it's closed and bounded, right? The, the yeah. box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have a dimension. Can we assume that there is a dimension which is being added to it? Or because it's a yeah, box. Yeah, well dimension, exactly. We are adding a dimension. All right. Okay. So mathematicians came and proved that the, the compactness of the cross product of co two compact spaces. And by induction, you can prove that the, if you have finitely many compact spaces, the cross product of all of them together is also compact. This is due to induction. It's really easy to show. All right. I'm not going to go over the proof why two, two compact sets, the cross products is compact, because it's not our topic. Our, talk, our topic is to prove that an arbitrary number of compact spaces, arbitrary means a huge, more than in, in countable, countably infinite 
maybe it's uncountable even. Can you imagine how many sets do we have, compact spaces, and we're gonna cross product all of them, and this, the result is still gonna be compact. This is what we want to show. Oh, wow, so that's Tikhonov's theorem? Yes, that's Tikhonov's theorem. All right, so okay. for uncountably many compact sets and their cross product is gonna give us another compact set. Exactly. That's Aren't our we gonna point. use induction to do this? Like it's so close to- No, that. no, we're not gonna use induction because induction can be used to prove for finitely many sets. So we used induction to prove that if we have n compact spaces, then the cross product of n of these is still compact. But right, for arbitrary numbers, we cannot. So the, like the keyword is because it's infinitely many, so we can't use induction for this. Yeah, infinitely many, but either countable or uncountable, we do not know. That's why I said infinitely many, and I didn't specify yeah. whether it's countable or uncountable. Yes, right. exactly. So uh, there's a definition I want, you, I want to give you. So if we have a collection C, if I say collection, think about it as a calligraphic letter, okay? And okay. if I say set, think about it as a regular letter X or Y, etc. Right, right. So if we, have okay. a collection, if we have a collection C of subsets of X, so this C contains subsets of X, right. okay? This, set, this collection C is said to have the finite intersection property. I'm gonna refer to it as FIP sometimes. So if this right. collection, has the finite intersection property if if you pick finitely many of the elements of c let's say the set c1 c2 c3 till cn which are subsets of x if you remember then the if you intersect all of them together c1 intersection c2 etc till cn then this set is non-empty there has to be an element inside so if something if a collection satisfies this condition it's said to have fip the finite intersection property all right so there's another characterization of compactness, which is gonna be used to prove uh, Tikhonov's theorem. I gave you two characterizations, one for metric spaces and another for with open coverings, remember? I'm listening, yeah, okay. Yeah, so the third one is using closed sets. How can we All say right. a set is compact? So the characterization is this. X is compact if and only if. Every collection C of closed subsets in X having the finite intersection property, the intersection of all of these elements in the collection has to be non-empty. So let's say you have this collection C of subsets of X, Alec. All right. And, and in this C, there are subsets of X. Let's say C1, C2, till C, a big number, infinity, whatever. And if you intersect all of these subsets, then there has to be an element inside. It's non-empty. Okay? okay, go on. So if if this is true, then X is compact. Now, uh, the proof of uh, Tikhonov's theorem uses something really powerful in mathematics, something called the axiom of choice. Have you heard about the axiom of choice? Yeah, I always hear you talking about it. Yes, yes. It's something really big in mathematics. So I'm going to use a variant of the axiom of choice, which is called Zorn's lemma. Zorn's lemma is equivalent to the axiom of choice. What does Zorn's lemma tell us? tells us that if P is a non-empty partially ordered set, what does partially ordered set mean? It means that P has some order inside. Order means a uh, relation. Let's say less than or equal to is an order, right? All right. Okay. But this less than or equal to quote unquote, it's not the less than or equal to that you know. It's something like, it's just a notation. It has to be reflexive. It means that if you have X, then X has to be less than or equal to X. It has to be anti-symmetric which means that if you have two elements, X and Y, 
then if x is less than or equal to y and y is less than or equal to x, then x has to be equal to y. It's something really like intuitive, but uh, we use these no notions in mathematics. And it has to be transitive as well. Let's say x is less than or equal to y and y is less than or equal to z, then x has to be less than or equal to z. Okay. Okay. Right, so, so we have this P, which is non-empty, and it's a part And it has the property that every chain in P has an upper bound in P. What does this mean? A chain of P is a subset of P, but the elements inside are ordered. So let's say P contains elements x1, x2, x3, etc., 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 and you pick a chain x1, x3, x5, x7. I'm taking the odd ones. We have to have an order inside. So we have to have a least element, and from that least element, you can you can say that let's say x3 is the least element. X3 is less than or equal to x5. X5 is less than or equal to x1. X1 is less than or equal to x7, etc., etc. And you have to use all the elements. So there, there's an order inside. Right, okay, so that's a chain. So if the property that every chain in P has an upper bound in P, then P contains a maximal element. So what does this mean that P contains a maximal element? So it has an element, let's say Y, which is greater or equal to quote unquote, of course, than all the rest of the elements. So this is okay. Zorn's lemma. All right. Okay. So first of all, the first lemma that we have to show tells us let X be a set and A be a collection of subsets of X having the finite intersection property. So now we're okay. What can we conclude? There is a collection D sub of subsets of X such that D contains A. A, is a, a was a collection of subsets of X having the finite inter intersection property. So calligraphic A, right? Yeah, calligraphic. I'm saying collection. All right. Okay. And this D, which is the, which uh, has has to have the finite intersection property, and this D is maximal, so it's the biggest one. It's the biggest collection of subsets of X, which has the finite intersection property. So if All you right. give me another collection of subsets of X, which has the finite intersection property, let's say calligraphic B, then D contains B because D is the biggest one. Okay. This lemma proves the existence of such a D, which is a maximal collection of subsets of X which has the finite intersection property. So this uses the Zorn's lemma, and this is where uh, it's a lemma. It's the, this lemma one that I'm gonna show is gonna be used in Tikhonov's theorem. So I'm using Zorn's lemma in Tikhonov's theorem, basically. So from now on, from, from now on when I say superset, uh, the superset means it's a set contain, containing collections. So now we're, get, we're getting more complicated. So a superset contains calligraphic letters. Okay, so an element in a superset is a calligraphic letter. So a calligraphic letter, which is a collection, contains subsets of X. Okay? Mm -hmm. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Okay, so a super, I'm gonna name the superset A, okay? Think about uh, uh, a superset as, remember how I write Z as the integers? Yeah. I, I write it in a different way. Yeah, with the double lines. Yeah, so think think about lines, okay? So that you can follow up. So a superset A contains collections B, subsets of X, such that these Bs contain A and B has the finite intersection property. I'm going to use Zorn's lemma to prove that this A has a maximal element. So A is non-empty, first of all. Why is so A non-empty? Why non -empty? do you need to prove that, though? 
this is a lemma. We're going to use it in Tikhonov's theorem. All right, all right, go on. Okay, so we have a superset A. A is non-empty because the calligraphic A belongs to the superset A. Why is that? Because in the superset, I defined the elements to be contained in A and having the finite intersection property. While A is contained in A, and we have assumed that A has the finite intersection property, so the superset A is non-empty because the calligraphic A belongs to the superset A. Okay? All right. First thing done, we have non-emptiness. Second thing, A is a partially ordered set because the less than or equal to quote-unquote is inclusion because we can uh, use inclusion is so something like less than or equal to, right? It's like yeah. a partially, it's a, par it's a binary relation which satisfies reflexivity, anti-symmetry, anti and transitivity. Yeah. Okay. So we have the second part. We have partially ordered set. The, the third part, which is left, is that if we have a chain, we, I'm going to call it B, superset B, okay? Superset B is a chain in A. And I have to show that this chain has a maximal element. Uh, it has an upper bound, I'm sorry. It has an upper bound. So let's see. Uh, okay, okay, let me ask you this. If we have a chain B, uh, chain B contains collections, okay? B1, right. B2, B3, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think is the biggest biggest uh, upper bound of all of these? What do you do in set theory to get the biggest one if you have many? What do you think? Do you intersect? Do you union? Do you cross product? Union. Yes, exactly. So we get, we let C, collection C, be a union yeah. of all the Bs in the superset B. And we have to show that this C is an upper bound of all of them. Well, it is an upper bound because it's the union, so each B is contained in C because we took it as to be the union by definition. We all just right. have to show that C belongs to A. That's it. Okay. How do we show that C belongs to A? We go to A. What, well, how did I define the superset A? I said the superset A is a it's it contains collections of subsets of X which are contained in A, calligraphic A, and it has the finite intersection property. We just have to show that C has the finite intersection property, and we're done. Yeah, so yeah. what do we do? We take sets inside uh, calligraphic C, C1 till Cn, and we have to show that the intersection is non-empty. But C, uh, but uh, the Cis, C1 till Cn, belong to C, and which is equal to the union of the Bs. So each CI belongs to some calligraphic BI, right? Yep. Okay. So now we take these collections of the BIs, that B1 till BN, which is still contained in the superset B. But the superset B is ordered because we said it's a chain. So we have a biggest element inside. We name this one the collection BK uh, without loss of generality. We just say it's some, some, there's, there exists some index K, and we say that all of the rest belongs to this BK. Okay. Okay. So C1 until Cn belongs to BK, obviously. And since BK has the finite intersection property, then C1 intersection Cn is non-empty. But since C1 intersection till Cn is non-empty, then C has the finite intersection property. Calligraphic C has the finite intersection property. Which completes and, your proof. Yeah, it completes the proof. And then by Zorn's lemma, there exists a collection D, which is a maximal element of A. So we're done with lemma one. Okay. We have the existence. Now, lemma two, lemma two is easier. I'm not going to go through the proof. It's just saying that let, let X be a set and let D be a collection of the subsets of X that is maximal with respect to finite intersection property. So what does this mean? If you, if you give me another collection B, which has the finite intersection property, it has to be contained in D because D is maximal. Okay? Yeah. 
because that's our assumption. The first implication, I'm going to name it A, it's, it's saying that any finite intersection of elements of D is an element of D. What does this mean? If we take D1 till D lambda, let's say D1, D2, D3 till D lambda, then if we intersect all of these, it's still an element in the collection D. This is what we have to prove. I'm not going to mm -hmm. prove it, but this is what it implies. And the second part, it's B. It's saying that if A is a subset of X that intersects every element of D, then A is an element of D. What does this mean? Let's say you have A, which is a subset of X, and this A, let's say the collection D has elements D1, D2, D3 till, I don't know. And we, we say that A intersection D1 is non-empty, A intersection D2 is non-empty, etc. This implies that A is an element of D. This is what our lemma two is saying. And now we're going to use this lemma one and lemma two to prove Tikhonov's theorem. And Tikhonov's theorem is telling us that an arbitrary product of compact spaces is still compact in the product topology. Okay, so how can we start? We say let x be equal to the product of x alpha, and alpha is in some indexing set j, and j is it can be uncountable, it can be countable, it can be really big. Okay, right. so we. I cannot say it's x1 cross x2 cross x3 till I don't know what, because it's, it can be uncountable. So I'm taking an indexing set j, which could be uncountable. So x equals the product of x alpha and alpha and j, j could be uncountable. And all of these x alphas are compact. Now, I'm going to use the characterization, which I told you earlier, um, that tells us that if you have a collection of subsets of, of x having the finite intersection property, let's say we call it A, then if we take an intersection of all the elements inside, and it has to be non-empty. If it is non-empty, then X is compact. Okay? All right. Remember the second, third, third characterization of compactness that I told you earlier? Uh, yeah, I think. Was it for yeah. the maximal thing? No. Uh, it's the one that telling, it's telling us that if we have a collection of subsets of X, which has the finite intersection property. And if we intersect every element inside this calligraphic A and it is non-empty, then X is compact. Okay, okay. That's what I'm gonna show. Now, we start with the collection A, an arbitrary one, but due to lemma one, we have another collection D, which is maximal with respect to the finite intersection property. So the calligraphic A is included in calligraphic D because D is maximal. So it suffices to show that the intersection of the D bars, the closures of D, and D, uh, all of the intersections of these inside the, in the calligraphic D is non-empty. So instead of showing that the intersection of the A's is non-empty, we're gonna show that the intersection of the D's are non-empty because D contains A, the calligraph calligraphic D contains the calligraphic A. So now we take alpha and J and we, say, we, we take the function pi alpha. Pi alpha is a projection map. You know the projection map, right? If let's say we have two spaces, x1 cross x2, and we're going to take pi1, and pi1 okay. pi of x1, x2 equals what? The first projection. Pi1 of x1 and x2? Yeah. The first projection. Okay, but what, what are we projecting? I don't quite follow with this. Okay, so we have, a, we have the map, we have a projection map, pi1, okay? Pi okay. In, with index 1. And right. it takes us to that x1 cross x2 to x1 because it's the first projection. Okay. We're, gonna apply, we're gonna apply this projection map to the element, to the pair x1, x2. So pi1, x1, x2 equals what? It equals x1 because we're projecting to x1. 
Okay. I I okay. think I got it. Okay. So think about the think about the R cross R. If you have an element three two, if you project it to with the, with respect to the x axis, you get three, right? The first mm -hmm. component. And if you project it with respect to the second component, so the second projection, you get two. Okay. So this is the projection map. But right. we're taking the projection map of the arbitrary number of uh, cross products. So pi alpha is from x, where x was the arbitrary cross product, and it takes us to x alpha. So this is the projection map. Now we consider and consider the collection of the images of the d's. The d's are the elements in the collection d, and these are uh, the collection we're considering right now is the images with respect to pi alpha. So pi alpha of d such that d is in the calligraphic d of the subsets of x alpha. Now it's easy to show that this collection has the finite intersection property because d has the finite intersection property. I'm not going to go through that. Basically, the proof is using the compactness of x alpha. And we can have that for each alpha, we choose a point x alpha in the capital X alpha such that X, I'm, I'm saying a lot of X alphas here. So the yeah. X alpha belongs to the intersection of the closures of pi alpha D. And now I claim that if we have, if we take the X to be all the X alphas, which are in D bar, then the intersection of the D bars is non-empty. I'm not gonna go through this proof. It uses lemma two because it's getting really complicated. But basically this is true, the claim I just said earlier that the the x we created belongs to d bar and this proves that the intersection of the d bars is non-empty and hence mm -hmm. by the characterization of compactness we have Chekhanov's theorem and we're done with the proof wow okay yeah that was a huge journey i tried to make it easy but i hope i succeeded uh I, I'm, just, I'm gonna be honest with you i, I don't think it was that easy, but it's, it's not because of you. It's just, I think the topic is really hard. And yeah, there's a quote. Tikhonov's theorem is one of the most important and most hardest theorems in general topology. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Topology itself is pretty hard. So, and like the hardest theorem in topology has to be, <laughs> as yeah. you said, really mind bending. Yeah. Just a couple of applications, the Banach-Aloglu theorem and the Arzola-Ascoli theorem due to Tikhonov's theorem. So these are two applications, which are theorems and functional analysis, which use the Tikhonov's theorem to be proved. All right. And that's it. Thank you. Interesting. Uh, as much as I hate to admit, it was pretty, pretty hard for me to follow you through, uh, throughout every point. When you but, come back to Lebanon, I'll explain it to you on the whiteboard. <laughs> just, just an added information for the listeners here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm currently not in Lebanon, and Steve is. So that's how we're doing it. So we, I think our podcast has become an international thing right now because we're like not in the same yes, borders. <laughs> by the way, uh, I'm at one of my friend's house. Uh, his name is Daron. He's actually a data scientist who graduated from Berkeley. So That's nice. yeah, I was actually thinking on come, uh, getting him get, getting him here as a guest, but not like for this episode, like for future episodes. Yes, uh, for sure. And I think he's really interested as well. So but I think he's gonna talk more about uh, theorem. Uh, I think he's gonna talk about the theorem rather than the theory because uh, I think he started out as a applied maths major and then he's like switched to data science because he realized that the job market <laughs> requires data science more than math majors. <laughs> yes. 
All right. Um, okay, so, Alex. What do you have us for today? The ensemble theory you said, I think. Yeah, I th- it's called classical ensemble theory, which is basically used throughout like any advanced stat mech course. Actually, it has to introduce classical ensemble theory. By the way, when I say stat mech, uh, people usually jump to uh, what's the word uh, thermodynamics. Well, it is actually mostly statistical analysis. That's what I do. Well, that is the case for at least what I'm trying to, at least that's the reason why I want to talk about uh, classical ensemble theory. And I'm actually even going to talk about how simple fluids behave using various models. But uh, that's like at the end of what I'm going to say. So I'm just going to start with some basic stuff. I'm just going to set up some within quote unquote axioms. For example, okay. first, I'm, I'd like to talk about uh, the phase space that I'm going to use. So when I say phase space, I'm going to use the momentum and position phase space. So let's assume, okay, for simplicity, I'm going to assume three dimensions of, for each. So I have X, Y, Z, uh, and, uh, and uh, P, X, P, Y, P, Z. But like for general, I'm not, I am going to assume so for simplicity, but I want to keep it general, so I'm, going to, I'm just going to say it's like R1, R2, and R3, and P1, P2, P3, just to keep it general. Uh, and okay, like, so what's R1, R2, R3, and what's P1, P2? It's, it's, I'm just saying them instead of X, Y, Z. Okay, we're in the And I will we're use in these R3. Just, just so that the audience can know. Okay, so, so we're in R cross R cross R right now. We're in the three-dimensional space, right? Yeah, it's actually... No, it's not... It's actually... Uh, so each particle has its own position and its own momentum. So it's actually a six n dimensional phase space such that n is the number of particles. Okay. Okay. I follow. So did you get did you get it? So or should I elaborate yeah. more? No, no, I'm okay. All right. So I'm gonna define a point gamma. It's actually a function of uh, r to the power n and p to the power n. By the way, r and p are uh, vectors. So the vector r is actually, for example, for particle one, we say that R is R1. And, but this is a different one. than the, That's why I, I'm going to use them interchangeably. Actually, I'm going to just stick to X, Y, Z just to make okay. it simpler. So, for example, R1 is like the position of the first particle that we're going to study in our gas, in our N particle gas. So, uh, since it's a vector, so I can define it as X vector plus Y vector plus Z vector together. X1 plus Y1 plus Z1, such that yes. X1, Y1, and Z1 are the coordinates of that particle itself. But in our case, since we're in a phase space, uh, we're going to define each particle with respect to its position, which is R, and its momentum. That's the whole point of the phase space. So uh, I would also like to define the Hamiltonian, which is basically uh, if the system is conserved, like it's a closed system where the energy isn't being, uh, where particles are not fleeing the system and the energy isn't being transferred in any way, so Hamiltonian is the total energy of the system. And that's the case that we're going to study so, here right now. Can I ask a question, which is kind of trivial? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So let's say, we, let's say we have a system which exerts heat. So that's not a closed system, right? Uh, because... What? Could, could you repeat well, the question? Say, okay, can you give me an example of a non-closed system? A non-closed system is basically if you have a cup of coffee and you add some milk and you just leave it exposed to the air. That's a non-closed system because it's uh, trading its energy off with the air and you will reach a thermal equilibrium where okay, the okay. coffee will become room temperature. But after the now, coffee becomes now room I get temperature, 
like the entire room would be a closed system if you had the windows closed. Like it's it, it goes on it just goes on forever, you know. Like yeah, basically how is, you're viewing your system, that's how you say if it's yeah, a closed system. Or not. Like if you want to go to a more mathematical or like informat uh, information theoretic approach, it's basically if the information is not leaving the system. If you don't, if if you want to go to the most abstract level of reasoning mm. which is the information theoretic approach approach so basically information doesn't have to leave the system if the information is leaving the system then the system is open for example we we, we can assume that the universe is closed but then there but then we have the black hole information paradox and stuff like this which is actually okay. a big question in cosmology so we don't actually know if the universe well I'm, i can't say for sure but like for for my sake and for my course's sake we always assume that the universe is a closed system like information is not leaving Okay. All right. Thanks, uh, Ali. All right. So moving on. So I have to define the Hamiltonian, though. So the Hamiltonian has a mathematical de definition. I'm just going to say it for, for the sake of saying it, because it's like a famous definition for Hamiltonian. So it is basically the momentum squared, like the norm of the momentum, but squared. Uh, actually, yeah, over 2m. So the mom when I say momentum, the momentum of each particle. So the, there's a subscript. So pi such that i goes from 1 to n. And, de and depending on n, and depending on the position of the particles, that can change to like an integral or a sum. So you can go as a discrete system or you can go as a continuous, but that's irrelevant to our situation. And we can always assume that there is a pair-to-pair -pair interaction between particles, unless we're dealing with ideal gases, which I'm going to go there soon enough. So basically, an ideal gas is a gas where the particles are so far apart that they don't interact with each other. So that's basically a difference. Okay. Uh, other definitions, that other, other remarkable definitions relating to the Hamiltonian and velocity, for example, the velocity of each particle is dependent on the derivative of the, the partial derivative of the Hamiltonian with respect to the momentum of said particle. So, for example, if I have R1, uh, R dot 1, so like V, actually, V1, if I want to find that, which is the velocity, it's a vector, I just have to der derive the Hamiltonian with respect to... Uh, differentiate the Hamiltonian with respect to uh, the, the momentum of said particle. But that's a bit counterintuitive because like, if you have the momentum, then how can you not have the velocity? But that's just, how, that's just a relation that comes up. And that, those are actually the Hamilton equations. And they're pretty much used in uh, at least analytical mechanics, more than quantum mechanics, I guess. Because like, I, I don't remember we using any, uh, what's the word? Like equa I, I don't remember driving equations of motions in quantum mechanics, you know, because that you need you need to uh, invent like new formulations, such as what Feynman did with the path and path integrals and stuff like that. We more or less use the Hamiltonian just to study the energy states and uh, phases and stuff like that. So that's besides the point. And we can also define the force of this, uh, the force of the particle, like the force which is the particles acting uh, with respect to the minus of the derivative of the Hamiltonian with respect to Ri. And if you see that, and when you see the like definition of the Hamiltonian, you realize that these uh, equations or these relations are really straightforward to uh, notice. So I would also like to talk about something more uh, interesting and more mathematical, which is the Liouville equation. And so the Liouville equation is basically uh, used for our sake. For our sake, it uses probability densities. So let's assume we have some probability, some time-dependent probability density f or phi, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to call it f. 
and which which is dependent on gamma, which is the phase point that we defined earlier on, and is dependent on time. So as I said, it's time dependent. Uh, and we have to assume that it's normalized. So if I integrate this f with respect to d gamma, I have to get a one. That, that's basically what normalization means because probability has to be conserved and it has to be between zero and one. And since we're doing it over all gamma, which is- It has to be one. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be throughout all the entire phase space and then you get, uh, what's the word, a one. So we can also define the differential of the gamma as the differential of R to the power N and differential of P to the power N. These are products. When I say to the power N, that's because it's like dr1, dr2, dr3, tilled to the Rn because you have like n, uh, n molecules or n uh, particles. Uh, so you're superscripting them? Yeah, it's actually powers. It's actually oh, okay, powers. power. Okay, you superscript the power n because you have n particles, but then it's okay. a subscript. Then it becomes a subscript, like dr1, dr2, dr3. They're subscripts when I... Okay. Okay. So basically the Liouville equation says for any conserved system, you have uh, the derivative of the probability density with respect to time okay, which is equal to some value with respect to the probability density itself. But why do we need this? Because there is something really interesting that's going on here. And I'm going to talk about Poisson brackets. So let's assume, and, and okay, so these two relations, like the derivative with respect to time of the probability density plus that given thing, uh, which is also dependent on the density, uh, is equal to zero. So when you equalize these two and you apply some chain rule, I'm not going to go in too deep to this. Like anyone who wants to know more, just search Liouville equation on Wikipedia because like if I explain it right now, it's just going to get more complicated because it's, it, it involves chain rule. And I don't, I don't want to like literally spell out every single subscript and superscript and how it's being der derived, you know. So I'm just going to go on with the conclusion. So basically, the so basically we get to a specific answer which is the derivative of the density, uh, probability density with respect to time gives us the Poisson bracket. So the Poisson relation between the Hamiltonian and the density itself. Now, this is analogous to quantum mechanics when you talk about commutators. For example, we know that X uh, and P are uh, two, what's the word, operators which do not commute. So that's why you have the uncertainty, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and stuff like this. So this is quite analogous to that, but it's a classical thing. Now, uh, I'm not going to say it's an inside joke, but like inside information. Steve, do you remember we were jogging one night with uh, yes, Andre? Yes, with Andre. About yes, it? I was just exactly. thinking about that. Yeah, that's exactly the same thing. Like, I just stumbled this. I just stumbled upon this throughout my grad course in soft matter and soft condensed matter theory. That's so, really nice. Yeah, so the Liouville equation is the starting point of most theories in physics, but we're going to use it for statistical mechanics for our, for our purposes. So there's this thing called an equilibrium system. And an equilibrium system is defined where such that the probability density of finding a particle at given point, phase point gamma and a given time t, the, the, the derivative of that with respect to t has to be zero. So it's not time, it's not time dependent. So the, prob the probability is not changing with respect to time. So it's an equilibrium system. That's just an axiom of physics. And the system is stationary as well. Okay. So that will give us, since the derivative of the probability density with respect to time is equal to the Poisson relation of the Hamiltonian and the density itself. And if we have an equilibrium system, 
Okay, now that's really important. When we have an equilibrium system, that means it's a stationary system. So what we can impose a translational invariant or a translational symmetry. Okay, like it's the particles are indistinguishable. That's that's another case to take into account. So the Poisson relation is equal to zero, and that then and that implies that the gamma dependence of F and the Hamiltonian itself. Uh, can only be through conserved quantities, which is the Hamiltonian itself in this case. So since the Hamiltonian is a conserved quantity, since we're working with closed systems, uh, and throughout these proof, uh, not proof, throughout like this derivation of said equations, of the Liouville equation, we can see that the probability density and its gamma dependence is only, conser is only through conserved quantities, which is basically <laughs> a big shout out to Emmy Noether's theorem. That's basically no other thing right now. So basically that says, if there is any symmetry in the system, since our system is in an equilibrium state and it's stationary, then there's translation of symmetry. Ergo, the probability density is, is only, uh, since it's gamma dependent, it only happens through conserved quantities. So but basically in like layman's terms, if there's symmetry in the system, then there's some entity in that system, a physical quantity, whether it's energy, momentum, or anything, okay, is Conser uh, conserved. So that's basically Noether's theorem. And that's like a big gun physicists use throughout. Uh, For sure, this <laughs> conservation, that the thing that's conserved, the physical entity, is due to an isomorphism, I'm definitely sure, if we translate it to mathematics. Uh, yeah, it's, I, think, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think we should like uh, read more about this. Like, I, should, yeah, I should actually read more about this in, from a more mathemat mathematical perspective, even though it is mathematical itself, but like more, I'd say, uh, more, I'm not going to say theoretical because this is theoretical, but like through a mathematician's eyes, let's say that, you know? Okay. Um, all right. So I'm going to define a few things which are really interesting. And then I'm going to jump to some main points. I'm not going to go throughout derivations because like they're cumbersome and it's just going to make people more confused. But I'm just going to give the main points of what's going on. Uh, so there is this thing called an energy sphere, which is basically, uh, we, we, we generally write it in terms of omega, which is dependent on energy, volume, and number of particles. So this is basically in, the integral with respect to d gamma, which is the phase point, the differential of the phase point, and the heavy side function. Now, to the audience who don't know what the heavy side function is, the heavy side, the derivative of the heavy side with respect to the variable it's carrying, for example, the heavy side of x, the derivative of the heavy side of x with respect to x is actually the Dirac delta. And the Dirac delta is actually zero everywhere besides at the origin. Okay? If the, okay, when I say origin, I'm assuming that the Dirac delta is with respect to a variable without any addition or subtraction of a constant. Because it's, for example, if it's like, uh, Dirac delta of x plus 2, then x has to be minus 2 in order for the Dirac delta to become uh, infinite. So it's not infinite at the origin, it's infinite at minus 2. I hope I make myself clear. Yes, yes. All right. So from this equation, uh, you can get some main ideas, but I want to talk about more uh, on the application to ideal gases, because that we, we want to talk about physics, at least in my case. So when we go to ideal gases, this omega thing, which I talked about, it's like this theoretical energy sphere or volume, hyper volume thing. You know, they use big words, even in lecture notes or 
anywhere else I've seen them they use big words but like basically that the omega is like uh, how can I say it it's like a thermodynamic potential and when I say potential that means you can derive any thermodynamic entity from that potential entropy energy uh, temperature and stuff like this so it's basically the uh, volume to the power n because you have like dr to the power n in your integral because you're you're doing the integral with respect to the phase point and that phase point has dr to the power n uh, differentials besides the momentum differential and times the heavy side but the heavy side is dependent on the uh, total energy of the system minus the hamiltonian and since we're talking with the ideal gases so there is no potential so the hamiltonian is solely based on the kinetic energy which is dependent on the momentum itself which i defined in earlier points but if anyone has some trouble understanding what's going on right now, I suggest that they pause the podcast and like go check out how to write, like how the Hamiltonian is written because it's already written with respect to the momentum and R and just do a brief search about ideal gases just to get a small idea what an ideal gas is, even though this is high school material, but like just in case. So you get something when you do the integral itself, because since it's a heavy side, then you're gonna get something like a constant which is dependent on energy, 2 pi, the mass of the particles and the volume itself to the power n. But as a denominator, you're going to get the Euler gamma function, which I've never seen throughout. Like I only saw it once in my ordinary differential course, equations course. Like I saw it briefly once, but surprisingly, I saw it again after like two, three years in grad school. So that's really interesting. And Can you repeat what, uh, what were you talking about? I didn't hear the name. The Euler gamma function. You get Euler like, gamma function. Okay. Yeah, as a numerator, you get some constants, which is thermodynamic thermodynamic constants, energy, mass, and stuff like this. And as a denominator of the like, as a solution, I'm talking about the solution of the integral itself. As a denominator, you're going to get the Euler gamma function, which is re with respect to the number of particles. Anyways, so through from this potential, the omega thing from this integral, we actually can get a lot of information about our system. And this is actually the, the, the beauty of classical ensemble theory. For example, we can get uh, the entropy of the system by just uh, applying the logarithm of the potential itself and dividing it with the given uh, entity, uh, natural units, just to get uh, a dimensionless entity within the logarithm and just multiplying the entire thing with a K just to get the entropy of the system and you can get like remarkable results results with that you can actually get your answers for uh, every ideal gas situation you can find and and for, through basic thermodynamic uh, pro properties for example if you derive the entropy with respect to energy you get more uh, the, the inverse of temperature and other relations as well uh, i want to talk about something really interesting which is thermal e equilibrium and that's really one of like my favorite points in statistical mechanics and you really see that temperature is actually a result of entropy and not and not the other way around like entropy is more intrinsic than temperature and that's something we don't learn we don't think about every day so basically let's assume you have two systems and each system has its own hamiltonian which is basically its own energy they're both closed systems so if i take these two systems and put them together and if I write down the equations, like the thermodynamic equations of these systems, I will reach a point where I will have one over 
t of system 1 minus 1 over t of system 2 equals to 0. And that translates to t1 is equal to t2 to uh, when there is thermal, thermal equilibrium. And t1 is the formula temperatures of the systems, right? Yeah. And okay. we know that in thermal equilibrium, we always have maximal entropy. Like the system is like as chaotic as it could be. All right. So that's basically uh, about classical ensemble theory and thermal equilibrium and stuff like this. There are some um, uh, interesting ideas uh, regarding how you can derive some things, but those are really, really technical. Although we're talking about technical things, for example, you can define something called free energy, which is basically uh, the, Legendre trans the Legendre transformation of the total energy of your system with respect to the coordinate S and stuff like this. But I don't think that's really relevant to what I'm going to say next. So next, I want to talk about simple fluids, which is really, which is another interesting topic. And this is like basically a continuation. Like this is an application of classical ensemble theory and actually other ways to get the same results, the same thermodynamic results. For example, uh, when we talk about simple fluids, there's something called uh, expansion. We always use expansions, especially if we're dealing with pressure for simple fluids, we can expand them with respect to density and stuff like this. And uh, that's called the virial expansion of, of pressure. And actually, to, de to derive the, for, since we're doing an expansion, then it's a polynomial. So each polynomial, so each degree of polynomial has its own uh, coefficient, and we call those the virial coefficients. And actually, to derive the virial coefficients, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of bookkeeping. So I'm not going to go. I'm not going to dwell into those too much. I'm just going to talk about main uh, experimental ideas that how we can like derive these things, et cetera, based mostly since we're working with fluids and stuff like this, uh, shining light is the best way to derive a lot of things. Even Landau in his book, uh, Statistical Physics, he actually proves that for a given type of pressure of a system, you can use uh, lasers to study uh, the variation of particles and their positions and stuff like this. Uh, are you with me, Steve, till now? So, yes, there... yes, I'm listening, I'm listening. Okay, uh, last but not least, I just want to talk about the Leonard-Jones potential, which is something physicists really use, and it's something really interesting, which accounts for everything. So Leonard-Jones potential is a model in physics. And through that, uh, we define, we, we actually study, but this, this isn't for ideal gases. It's simple fluids, but it's not for ideal gases because we actually... Uh, assume that there is a potential between the particles themselves. And it's actually really similar to uh, the nuclear, one of the nuclear models where they assume that each nucleus has a given potential where the other particle cannot enter, cannot breach. But as soon as you leave that potential, there is like this minima, uh, like global minima, which is the attraction of the particles themselves which is basically the strong force in nuclear physics. And in our case, it's basically the, elect the electrostatic potentials which are attracting themselves. Uh, but as I said, the minima is curved, and that accounts for, in our case, in simple fluids, it accounts for the Pauli, ex Pauli exclusion principle, which says that two fermions cannot occupy the same quantum state. So that's why you don't have like a steep line, you have like a curved line. What do you um, mean by like, like curved, the, the, minimum, I mean the, the minima is curved? Like, like what the do you minima mean is there. The minimum okay. is there, and as you translate yourself towards uh, infinity, 
the minima doesn't uh, like let's say the minima is at one for example okay, okay. one sigma uh, sigma is a given variable uh, not a variable a given parameter so as you go to two sigma it doesn't go as a steep line it goes like a curved line which is a logarithmic line okay okay but at the end it's going to reach a zero the potential itself it's going to reach a zero because if you take the particles far enough then there's not going to be any attraction or repulsion because they're too far so it's going to reach a zero so it's basic it's basic electrostatics actually but maybe maybe like you've even taken those electrostatic courses in your first year i guess so because yeah. i have your notes i have your notes with me but right I, now, if you, at home. I don't remember many stuff yeah that's fair that's fair yeah. uh so yeah so but since leonard jones potentials are actually really hard to uh they're pairwise so it's really hard to put them into integrals in order to study the probabilities and stuff like this so we approximate them we use like hard spheres as examples for example we assume that from zero to sigma such that sigma is uh the diameter of the sphere you have infinity as value that's the potential value. So phi, let's assume phi is the potential. So from zero to sigma, it's infinity. From, sig, from sigma to, let's say, sigma plus lambda, with lambda as a given variable, depending on the molecules that you're studying, uh, you have like a minus epsilon, which is the attraction part. And then you have like uh, phi is equal to zero after sigma plus lambda. And then you have the square well potential, which is really, really similar to the uh, hydrogen square well thing. So I'm not going to delve into that, like whoever is interested in physics. Like the hydrogen square well is basically the most simple form of an atom that you can study in quantum mechanics using the Schrodinger equation. So it's really similar to the hard sphere thing. But the difference is it's more, it's more like, I'm not going to say, it's more, let's say, it's, it's, it's a little bit more precise than the hard sphere. You know, like the hard sphere is pretty, uh, I'm not going to say rigid, it's, Maybe robust. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Anyway, so that's basically what I wanted to talk about. I just wanted to like make an introduction to canon canonical ensemble theory and classical ensemble theory because like it's one of the main frameworks of uh, statistical physics and actually material science. Uh, I had one question, Alec. I didn't ask you earlier because you were in your chain of thought and I didn't want to yeah, disturb go on, you. Go on. Uh, when you you applied Noether's theorem and ensemble theory or in statistical mechanics is there yeah. another theorem a global theorem of Noether that does this in other fields in physics the Noether theorem is itself a global theorem like for but, any ah, okay so you, you apply any, it in statistical any, mechanics for example yeah I'm just yeah, I'm just applying it to statistical mechanics I'm just saying that probability is conserved so I, actually no sorry let me rephrase since translational uh, since translation, then since we have translational symmetry, then the energy is conserved. Okay, okay. Now I get it. You know, but this this same chain of thought actually applies itself to classical mechanics, like analytical mechanics and stuff like this. Interesting. Yeah. So that's basically it. And um, I guess it's a wrap for our second episode of yes. theories. Thank you, As Alec, always. for your talk. Thank you too, Steve. It was really informative and it was really interesting as well. Uh, sorry for the delay since I was in Armenia and, and I had a bit of jet lag, so I couldn't like record yesterday and Steve as well couldn't record yesterday. Uh, no so that, 
I was actually talking to the audience, Steve. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. I, okay. Yeah, I, I'm thinking. I'm an audience as well. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we'll be back in I think two weeks' time. Like not this week, the week after on Sunday. So we hope to see you soon again. And as always, I'm your co-host Alexander Albekian. And I'm your co-host Steve Ashkarian. And have a good week. See you guys. Bye. Bye.